So tonight, this is a continuation of the talk that I began uh, the first evening when we arrived. And this is about the sure heart's release, the sure heart's release. And I'd like to begin with the words of the Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. So this talk this evening is meant to help you understand the long-range view of this path, the long-range view of our journey, to make it possible to see beyond whatever goals you have made for yourself. As wonderful as they may be, they're worthy goals, goals of being more loving, more kind, goals of having more concentration, more uh, depthful calm and tranquility, being a better person, a better meditator, more knowledgeable. It's also to stay open to far-reaching possibilities and not exclude them from our minds. So this is meant to help you be in more complete alignment with what the teachings of the Buddha were purposely presented for. And just to repeat the important words, this is from another passage. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So here and in other parts of the ancient scriptures, the Buddha makes clear that virtuous conduct through generosity, through wholesome speech and behavior, the practices of concentration, through knowledge that we gain, through reading, through hearing from others. These are all indeed part of the path of our practice, part of the holy life. But they're not the complete path or the highest aspiration. And maybe it's not for us to even think about the highest aspiration in this life. But if you never receive the seed for it, it will never grow in your heart. You will never know that there is something greater than what might be usually presented in Dharma circles. So to point the way to present the possibility, the unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, this is the possibility of the Buddha's teaching, the ultimate reality, the ultimate aim of realizing the unconditioned which the Buddha calls the complete departure, the complete relinquishing of craving, the complete extinction of suffering. So last time I talked about the three pillars of the Dhamma, those three pillars that, um, that this was Manindra's symbol, the way he phrased it. The first being the practice of living with a generous heart and acting it out. The second being the practice 
of living in harmony, actively refraining from speech and behavior that causes harm to ourselves and to others. This is out of deep respect, not just for others, but for our own karmic stream, so our karmic stream can remain as pure as possible. So these practices, we know, we're all generous people, and basically we live in harmony with one another. We do our best to do that. And we know that they bring great happiness, a sense of inviolable protection to us, well-being. And practicing dana and sila, generosity and living in harmony, gives us such a deep sense of well-being that we feel safe. We feel a great sense of connection with others through dana and sila, but we also feel a greater connection with our goodness within. And this allows the inner world to relax when we feel this connection with our goodness. It's why it's so important for these two to be developed. We're not constricted with regret or with guilt, or maybe it's a lessening of it. Maybe it's not total, but there's a lessening of it. We're not lost in blaming ourselves or blaming others or in being blamed, just always being on the defensive. So we're able to deeply relax. And this produces a very powerful sense of faith in our ability to navigate the inner terrain and the outer terrain of life as we continue to do the practices that are offered in Dharma circles like this. We're able to have a great more confidence in ourselves. So we get, with this, we get a glimpse of the possibility of going beyond. For me in the beginning, when I first heard the teachings, the teachings were never devoid of this great far-reaching possibility. Nibbana or the unconditioned was talked about from the very beginning. It was never left out. And I appreciate my teachers who never held back from that. And so we want to bring that forth in, with greater awareness so that we can not only hear the preliminary teachings, but the whole of the teachings of the Buddha whenever possible. So from the very beginning, I had a sense that, oh, this is, this is pretty everyday stuff for uh, the teachers who brought it forth to me. And I would hear teachings, uh, stories of people like Deepama, uh, who was a housewife in India, a relative, actually, of Manindra, and how Deepama practiced according to Manindra's instructions. And <coughs> she attained um, purity of heart and mind far beyond even not so far beyond, but even beyond, Manindra says, even beyond Manindra's attainment. But he was able to direct her to that. And so just hearing stories of a simple housewife like myself, I thought, you know, I, I think I was pretty naive and I, I wasn't so cynical 
as cynical as I am these days with the world we live in. But I was able to say, oh yeah, okay, that's possible, and be able to continue my path with that possibility. Of course, there were many moments of doubt, countless moments of doubt along the way. But still, that seed being planted in the very beginning was a very important seed. So to understand that we all have this capacity to experience a happiness and peace beyond the conditions of this life. What is, that's why it's called the unconditioned. It's not conditioned upon any kind of happiness we can have in this life. It's not conditioned upon anything. It's beyond this life, beyond the conditions of this life. So here we start to understand how to go beyond the understanding of giving and generosity, yet still include it. How to go beyond the understanding of sila, or living in harmony, yet still include it in our lives as human beings. But with these two as sturdy foundations, we have greater faith in ourselves, in our spiritual well-being. We're more able to practice the third pillar of the Dhamma, which I'll speak about tonight more in length. And this is bhavana. Bhavana is a third pillar. It means mental or heart development. Bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been brought forth. So in the West, mental development usually means acquiring knowledge. It means learning and applying skills uh, to help ourselves, help others, of course. In the meditative field, it could mean acquiring and having uh, knowledge of the suttas and of the ancient teachings that have been written. It could mean acquiring blissful states of mind as we do our practice. But from a longer and deeper perspective, of the teachings of the Buddha, mental development is also about understanding and strengthening the capabilities which actually liberate it from all the suffering that we experience as human beings, liberate it from deeply entrenched habits that, su that cause us suffering, habits of greed and hatred and delusion in all its various forms. So contained in bhavana are two areas of mental or heart development. Now all of this could be a little um, theoretical for you, but it's important to take this in and understand what you can of it. Sometimes, in fact many times in my life as a yogi and continues to be, I have a life, a big life as a yogi myself, I hear teachings or heard teachings which I did not understand at all. But I kept open to listen. And when the right time came, actually when my practice was able to develop to a point where I could understand those teachings, those teachings came forth and I could connect what I heard with what I experienced. And it was very important to do that. So I just um, 
request you to stay as attentive as you can, even though it could seem a little uh, theoretical and boring. But it, some of it may attune to what you're experiencing, actually. So the first of these two areas of mental development is called samatha. And you maybe you hear the word samadhi when we are in deep samadhi or a person is in deep samadhi. This is uh, from the practices of samatha, concentration practices, which by itself leads to a very deep kind of calmness and tranquility, seclusion of mind, seclusion from the hindrances. It's a one-pointedness of mind, you might say. This prepares the mind in strength and stability. So this is an important practice of preparation. This is not the end all and be all of practice. This practice helps us to pierce through the illusions of wrong understanding, of not seeing correctly or seeing something and uh, perceiving it to be something else in our practice, which actually just means uh, seeing impermanence and perceiving it to be permanent, something like that, to seeing, just seeing everything as self and not seeing more deeply into that illusion, seeing something that's pleasant and thinking that it will always be pleasant, that it doesn't turn into unpleasantness at some point. So we pierce through the illusions of wrong understanding. And this makes the mind serviceable. This is why concentration is so powerful. It's so important because it makes the mind in the service of wisdom, developing wisdom, revealing the truth of the nature of all of life, which is through the practice of satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana, this kind of bhavana. This is the second bhavana area, the development of wisdom. To bring forth wisdom, bhavana, to bring forth wisdom through vipassana. This vipassana, this is what we're doing mostly in our retreat here now, except for the afternoon when we do the metta or equanimity, which is more a samatha or a concentration practice. It helps to understand what you're doing when you do this practice. So this vipassana leads to liberating insight. Samatha doesn't lead to insight. Vipassana leads to insight. It leads to transformative understanding. It leads to the unconditioned peace of Nibbana. So to expand first on samatha, the first of these bhavanas, the concentration practices, to help you understand what are they They are all the Brahma-vihara practices. I mentioned this afternoon that the Brahma-viharas or the divine abodes, divine emotions, are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These concentration practices can be visualizations. In the Dhamma or the Buddha's teachings, the visualizations can be on what we call kasinas or balls of color where we continually focus the attention 
on these casinas. They can be on sound. They can be on, in other traditions, mantras. They can be on the breath, exclusively on the breath. This can uh, lead to, this can develop samatha or deep concentration. So what happens when we do concentration practices? The mental energy is repeatedly directed and focused on a particular object that we choose on one object or on limited objects. It could be metta, the phrase, the breath, the casinas. It's, it does that over and over and over and over again. Whenever the attention falls on something else, like maybe thinking arises or it goes to thinking or it goes to something else other than the chosen object, that other thing that arises is ignored it's left in the background, it's not given any attention. That's why in Vipassana we ask you, when something else comes up, don't just rush back to the breath because you'd be doing samatha practice, but to open to whatever is being open to. But in samatha, we come back to something over and over and over again. We ignore whatever happens, whatever else comes up. In time, the momentum of all that energized, focused attention becomes so strong that nothing else can come in. It forms like a field of seclusion. So what happens is all the hindrances are left at bay. They can't come in because of this uh, formation of this area of seclusion. The energy of mindfulness streams towards that object over and over again, and a strong force field is created. And sometimes we can feel that force field. We can feel when we've done purposefully or accidentally samatha practices, we feel that the hindrances are very far away. Nothing else can enter, and the mind is so fixated on the vision, the sound, or the object, it gets absorbed in it. It kind of uh, goes into it. It happens through repetition on, and the continuity on one object or limited objects. In this absorption, there's a feeling of extraordinary calm, of extraordinary tranquility, of a, pros of a profound sense of seclusion. That's why we love it when it happens. It's a sense that ordinary experiences of the world are very, very far away. It's a very enjoyable, very refined, mental, secluded experience. Concentration practices are and were exalted and praised by the Buddha. This will last as long as one continues to do the practice and the momentum of mind remains in that degree of strength. But as soon as the momentum of mind uh, gets broken or that degree of focus is stopped, then it breaks up and all the hindrances can rush in again depending on how long we've been doing the practice and how strong the practice has been. Often because it's so seductive, 
attachment can arise to these practices. That's why uh, we want to do them. We, you know, it's hard to open to vipassana because vipassana is so chaotic, but concentration or samatha practices are so sublime and we want to be there. But this is not the aim of the Buddha's teaching. This is just uh, one of the strengths that we develop. When I was doing metta practice exclusively for a long time, um, this was an intensive retreat. Every time I reported to Sayadaw Upandita, he would ask me, well, maybe not every time, but many times he would ask me when I would report these extraordinary uh, experiences that came with samatha, he would say just sort of, you know, wryly, do you like this? And I would say, I would be lying if I said no. I would say, oh yes, I do. (laughs) It's wonderful. And he would say, is there attachment to this state? You know, and then I'd, of course, I'd have to really see whether there was or not. And oftentimes I knew that there was. So you would just have to watch out for that. But attachment can unknowingly arise to these states of mind. People who do a lot of concentration practice, when they start doing vipassana practice, the mind falls back into concentration all the time because of that hidden attachment. It just wants to do concentration practice. So when the practice is stopped, a deep calm and tranquility dissolves, and all the hindrances return in time. Tranquility, calm, concentration are important factors in supporting the deepening of practice. And we see that concentration by itself provides temporary freedom from the hindrances, but doesn't provide total freedom from the hindrances. They're only kept at bay temporarily. We begin, though, during our concentration experiences to realize the value of having a mind so clean and so pure. We begin to understand that this is something worth reaching for. And this is another reason why it's such an important experience to have. Um, Just a few moments of this in a retreat, even though the rest of the retreat has been total dukkha or suffering, just a few moments of this feeling of seclusion and the sublime experience can bring us back to the next retreat. Even We don't seem to remember all the dukkha as much as that sublime moments and we'll come back. So this is what concentration, in, in a nutshell, is. It's not the end of the path, but it is an important place on the path to develop concentration, to experience that deep calm and tranquility, so very important and essential. And that's why the Buddha offered the practices. The second category of bhavana is the development of liberating insight. And this is what we practice when we practice vipassana. Vipassana means seeing or experiencing the true nature of reality. So actually, we can look at that word vipassana and see that that is the result of our practice, seeing or experiencing 
the true nature of reality. What we're practicing is satipatthana. That's what we're practicing. Sati is mindfulness. Patana, tana means foundations. Pa means extraordinary. Extraordinary mindfulness on the various foundations that we bring attention to. So we're practicing satipatthana for the result of experiencing the true nature of phenomena as it really is. In Vipassana, we open to the moment-to-moment view, how things are moment-to-moment with extraordinary mindfulness, not with the everyday mindfulness that it takes to live our lives, or it's wonderful to be present with one step, or with a bird call, just hearing, or with our partner, just being in front of our partner, and uh, having that kind of extraordinary presence, of course. But that isn't the kind of sati that the Buddha was talking about. The Buddha was talking about an extraordinary kind of mindfulness that's able to develop wisdom through the development of that mindfulness. That kind of mindfulness sees beneath or beyond the thoughts and concepts that of life. It sees beyond Uh, the illusion of solidity, the illusion of continuity. It's a deepening wisdom that grows through being present, with being with the present moment. As Utejaniya, one of our teachers, says, mindfulness alone is not enough. It's not just about being present with, you know, walking or sitting, being able to do our life in a present way, turning on lights. That's That's wonderful, but um, that's not going to get us liberated totally from suffering. It may be that's kind of like a short-range view, very limited view. So in this practice, in this satipatthana vipassana, we're opening to the full range of experience, not just to the breath, but we're opening to the four foundations of mindfulness as the Buddha pointed out in the Satipatthana Sutta. The first one is sensations of the body, which include the breath. The second one, uh, foundation, are feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There's a full range of mental experiences that we have. Joy, loving kindness, anger, attachment, wholesome and unwholesome mental experiences or heart experiences. There's experiences of the sense doors, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, etc. The subtle and gross levels of experience. There's the experience of knowing itself, consciousness itself. So when we do this practice, we may use something as a primary anchor, like the breath, Uh, or we may not. It may be more of an open attention. We might not use the breath exclusively. We may use it to stabilize the attention, but sometimes it's just given up or one can't find it altogether. In Satipatthana Vipassana, everything that arises is the object of attention. That's why I said the other day that thinking is not a distraction. 
It's another object of attention. Mental states, unwholesome mental states, defilements, are not a distraction. We, can't, we don't wait until sloth and torpor go away or aversion goes away in order to do our practice. They become the foundation of mindfulness at that time. So whatever is occurring in the moment, mindful attention is brought to that place repeatedly, sent to whatever is occurring moment by moment. Concentration here is hugely supportive, but this concentration is not on a single object. This kind of concentration that we bring to Vipassana is on changing objects. So this is the main difference and something that you all should really understand. The first kind of uh, bhavana practice, samatha, that concentration is on one object or limited objects. The concentration that's in vipassana is on changing objects. We bring momentary concentration on the different objects that arise moment to moment to moment. The breath, uh, aversion, any of the defilements, uh, hearing, tasting, touching, etc. You know it's all changing very quickly. You all experience that. You also experience that Vipassana is not one of great calm and delight. That's why we often go back to concentration. <laughs> we like to be in calm and we think that that is the practice. People often report, I've had good practice. I was really calm. I was really in tranquil and uh, concentrated. Yeah, it's all good, but that isn't, when we hear that, we think, oh, there could be some attachment. That isn't necessarily good practice. When you open your attention and you experience all the changing, the changing nature of all phenomena with a kind of moment-to-moment concentration and a kind of okayness with everything, this is really good practice in vipassana. It's momentary on each object because it's always changing. And the fact that it's always changing is an important element of our practice because it gives us the opportunity to open to deeper wisdom, to open to the wisdom of impermanence. So the subjective experience of vipassana can be one of chaos, actually, until equanimity is strengthened. Equanimity is able to be with the changing experience without reacting to it. So in Vipassana, one cannot stay on anything even for a moment. We think our practice isn't very good. We judge our practice here and we think everything is falling apart. But that's a wrong view. That's a wrong evaluation. Actually, that experience can be excellent. It really can be good, depending on where you were before that. It's, we usually, as teachers, watch where you were before that to see if you were developing something up to that. So you need a guide who has been in this place before and able to, to know, who's, who's able to know where you exactly are with your practice and guide you 
from there to be able to let you know that this is okay. What you're developing, what you're understanding is okay during this time. And give, to give you some strength and confidence in what you're going through. Sometimes when we open to this kind of understanding where everything's chaotic, we want to go home. We say, I can't do this anymore. It's called the rolling up the mat stage. And, <laughs> and this happens at, you know, a couple of times, a couple of big times in retreat. So if this happens, you know, it may not be happening or has happened to you, but just to hear these words may give you some, uh, some confidence, some solace in the future. Like, oh, I heard this before. This may not be so bad. I myself heard these things. And when I came across these experiences, I knew, oh, this is what Manindraji was talking about. I have to find out a little bit more. I have to get some help. But I know I'm not going crazy, at least. So this is an extraordinary experience. Mindfulness, uh, attending to the changing objects, is revealing the insight into the true nature of experience. Vipassana, insight into the true nature of experience. So what is that realization? What are these extraordinary facets that the mind or mindfulness is opening to? So just um, in a very basic way, in each moment, for, one, for some of us who have come across this, it is clear that there is the object of mindfulness, one of the four foundations of mindfulness, either the body, the feelings, the moods of the mind, or the objects of the mind, and the knowing of them. And it becomes very clear that these are two separate things happening. It's not just, this is, a, this is the beginning of when the sense of self starts to be seen in a pixelated view. The objects of mindfulness and the knowing of them are different things. It's kind of like starts to break apart a little bit. Sometimes people know this, or yogis know this, uh, in a very calm way, depending on a lot of karma, depending on their paramis, their uh, virtuous qualities also, that are inherent in, in that lifetime. So sometimes it's very calm. Sometimes people come to know this with a joyful kind of interest. Sometimes it can be quite scary to see how this is all starts coming apart. Things start coming apart. What, however it's seen, whether it's joyfully or with calmness or with some kind of fear, it's seen clearly. It's seen clearly. Also, what a yogi begins to see is the conditionality of all phenomena or the conditionality of all of life. A meditator realizes experientially, not by book knowledge. Everything arises due to different changing experiences coming together and falling apart. Everything arises due to changing phenomena, experiences, conditions, coming together, changing, and dissolving. 
moment by moment by moment, this is being seen. This can also lead to some kind of scariness in seeing that. But sometimes yogis can be quite calm in understanding this. So from this, a realization starts to dawn or deepen in one's own mind stream that nothing really permanently exists in and of itself. Because this pixelated view is really seen through, each moment of experience is really seen through. It's seen each moment we see the arising or the changing or the passing away or all of the above. Sometimes one moment is seen more clearly than another. And we see that because nothing in and of itself really exists permanently or solidly, one also comes to see that even in combination, any of these things coming together and falling apart, none of it makes sense as being solid or permanent, even in combination. So these realizations begin to dawn on the mind, and wisdom begins to grow. This happens through vipassana. It doesn't happen through concentration, because concentration does not take changing... Pure concentration practice does not take changing objects. It just stays on one permanent object. That's why this impermanence cannot be seen, doesn't lead to wisdom. So because of strong and relentless continuity of practice, which happens organically, there's a moment, there's a time in practice when it's called effortless mindfulness. You're not even trying. There's nobody trying. And mindfulness just is there. It just keeps coming of itself. You can't help but be mindful. So the momentum of mindfulness builds strength, and it's supported by that moment-to-moment concentration. It penetrates or pierces or unveils the illusion of solidity. That's why we ask you in practice to come really close, to touch the moment of experience. Don't just be with the breath. You can know that, too, from the breath. But when something arises, Don't just rush back to a single object. Know that moment and know it very, very clearly. Sometimes we ask in um, longer retreats to take attention and rub the attention on the object. Really come close. Not just, you know, a glancing view, but really come close to the experience. Because in really that intimacy of experience will reveal much more than just a glance at it. So it's not just uh, being mindful from a kind of uh, faraway view, but from a very close-up experience, very intimate experience of it. Mindfulness is supposed to sink into the object. It's not supposed to glance over it. One of the um, functions of mindfulness, it says, is to not just float on the object, but sink into it. So it pierces that illusion of compactness.
process of solidity, of permanence. So what happens is that, um, the, for example, the compactness of what we thought of as the body is seen through. When we bring attention to sensations of the body, we ask you, and, and I think in one uh, question and answer period, Steve directed someone into experiencing what is really felt when you bring attention to one experience on the bo- in the body. It can be heat, pressure, tension, vibration, swaying, stiffness, coldness. All of these experiences make up possibly even one sensation arising and passing away. So what is happened? What is happening when attention is brought to these experiences is that the deepening wisdom of oh this body of what we call what we thought is I, me or my body is just this experience of changing sensations. It all comes down to the elemental nature of the body. The hardness and softness of the body when it when mindfulness really rubs the attention there in a moment is really the earth element not me not mine not who i am vibration swaying stiffness is the air element temperature of cool cold and hot is the fire element heaviness And the element that binds all the other elements is the water element. In all its changing manifestation, this is what we call body. The piercing nature of mindfulness and of the other factors that come into play, concentration and wisdom comes into play, sees this body as just cloud-like, bubbles in a stream very, very porous sometimes. Whether it's painful or pleasurable, it's not seen as so, um, as so continuous or so solid anymore. And what about the mind? In all of its infinite changing manifestations, the mind is so like untangible but in a way much more powerful than the body. We see directly how it's just one phenomena after another, one thought, one mental mood, one heartfelt experience of something, um, one memory, one worry, one planning for the future. Just all of these things arising and passing away you try to hold on, you try to figure out what was that thought all about and it's gone. Somebody said the other day, oh when a mood arises or just like worry arises, I try to pay attention to it but it's gone immediately. That happening over and over and over again is an insight into anicca, into impermanence. Maybe not one happening but when it happens repeatedly deep insight begins to arise into the nature that everything is like this empty phenomena arising, changing, passing away, rolling on. So everything that makes up this mind and this body continuum is seen as unceasingly 
arising, changing, dissolving into nothing. It sounds pretty scary, but actually this is the reality of our life that we're tuning into. This is a far-reaching reality to begin to understand more and more deeply, or else we're not living our lives fully. So we begin, wisdom begins to have insight into anicca, into impermanence, and begins to deepen. The mind cannot stay on anything for a moment, even if previously it was able to connect and sustain the attention very well, there comes a time when it can't do that because it's seeing ever more deeply into the, uh, just the dissolving nature of everything, fading away nature, transient nature of all phenomena. Everything disappears like vapor. And this, this uh, one, the mind gets used to this. It could be a little scary depending on equanimity. That's why it's important to develop equanimity. But uh, in time, the mind just gets used to this unstable nature. Whatever mindfulness lands on, whether it's sensations of the body or the mind experiences of perception, feelings, intentions, and consciousness itself, nothing stays everything goes. And this is what's happening underneath the reality, the, um, this uh, relative reality of the conceptual reality we live in. Because the mind or wisdom lets go of the notion of permanence, it sees the truth of impermanence. It abandons the wrong view of permanence very important step in our practice. And because of this, a deep understanding of dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of life, this insight knowledge arises. This kind of dukkha is not an unpleasant feeling. It's not that, or it's not aversion. It's an understanding that because everything is continuously arising and passing away, There is nothing, absolutely nothing, in this world, in this conditioned world, that we can hang on to that will give us enduring satisfaction. Enduring satisfaction. Maybe temporary, but not enduring satisfaction. So when wisdom grows and begins to see this, it starts to realize the futility of attachment of clinging, of chasing after pleasant experiences all the time. Doesn't mean you stop doing that. Doesn't mean you stop enjoying life. In fact, you enjoy life more because it's so precious, because it's so impermanent, it's so fleeting. But we realize, wisdom realizes that there is nothing lasting about anything. So it lets go. And in time, it stops reaching out to cling to anything. It may understand, of course, that conditions come together to form certain experiences of life, and we have to respond in a certain way. We don't become a blah because we know this. We, we know how to respond to life. 
but we understand even more deeply than that that we can't hold on to anything. So the mind has a greater sense of letting go and living in that kind of alignment and relief. And from the basis of impermanence or anicca comes the insight knowledge of anatta. Steve spoke about this last night, the not-self characteristic of existence. So since Steve spoke about it last night, I just want to read uh, this is from a sutta, The Greater Advice to Rahula. This was a Buddha's son. So the Buddha said to Rahula, his son, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. This is insight into the anatta characteristic, the not-self, the aspects of mind, the elemental experiences of body, which come together, continually arising, passing away, dissolving, forming a a seemingly solid sense of self. But really, when we see, because of anicca or of impermanence, when we see through this, we see that nothing that arises in what we call self, all the component parts of what we call self, sensations of the body, perception, feelings, uh, consciousness itself, all intentions, any of this, these are the five aggregates that I just mentioned, any of these are empty of any solidity, empty of any core by themselves or as uh, any kind of grouping together. So the existence of self as a sense of self still exists, but there is a, an, a deeper understanding that happens that coexists with this sense of self. And it under, there's this understanding of not-self, this anatta characteristic. It actually, it makes life easier. It's, for some people, it could be a shock, but for some people, it can be a relief to know, to understand this. There's an easier time in letting go. I want to read something from Trungpa Rinpoche that just this short writing explains anatta, or not-self, in a very straightforward way. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly, they generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it, and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this, the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. 
It's only by acknowledging impermanence that there is the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So here, Trungpa Rinpoche contains both, you know, understanding this not-self characteristic and also understanding this sense of self that has to be in life as a creative process. So the wisdom of the mind sees all compounded things as they really are, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self. And in time, there's a disenchantment with the illusion of life, with the delusions of life. All that was previously attached to, wisdom can let go of. Doesn't mean you stop living your life in the way you need to. It just means that you live with deeper wisdom, greater wisdom. So there there arises in a lawful way what we call uh, sankara upekka. This upekka is uh, equanimity. And sankara is all the doors that equanimity opens to, all the experiences of being human. It's a profound experience of being balanced towards all formations. Very profound experience. Whatever arises, there is no reactivity towards. The mind just sees it as it is, and it is. it goes. There's no need to let go of anything, because there's just the seeing that everything is going. That's all. So there's no reactivity to any experience at the five sense doors. And as Manindra would say when, these, um, when this kind of time comes, would say nothing but let go, let go, let go, or see it, see the, the truth of impermanence during this time. As the Buddha said to a group of monks, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha. What is dukkha, what is suffering, is not self, not controllable. So nothing at all can be clung to during this time. The continuity of the mind stream becomes and is very, very purified. Nothing can be held in the mind. Greed, hatred, and delusion pass away moment by moment. All formations arise and pass away without adding any more defilements to the mind stream. The momentum of that continuity becomes so powerful that the direction towards greater freedom is inevitable. One cannot stop that from happening. So what happens because of the momentum is that the direction of life then leaps into the unconditioned, into Nibbana, the goal of the Buddha's teaching, the sure heart's released, release. And it's said that this cannot be described because actually there's nothing to describe. It's unmade, it's unborn. It's the cessation of all experience. It's beyond words, beyond any imagination, beyond formations, beyond even knowing. 
So these are the words of the Buddha who actually did uh, talk about in a relative way you might be able to point to the absolute but it said that it comes nowhere close. This is from the Udana and the Buddha says there is monks, an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. There is, O monks, that sphere where there is neither earth, nor water, nor fire, nor wind, nor, nor sphere of infinite space, nor sphere of infinite consciousness, nor sphere of nothingness, nor sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, nor this world, nor the next world, nor the sun, nor the moon. And there I say there is neither coming nor going nor standing still, nor passing away, nor arising without stance, without foundation, without support. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Also from the Udana. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the stable, the unmanifest, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, Nibbana, the unafflicted, the unadhesive, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So these are the teachings that the Buddha offered. And I'd like to sum it up by bringing all of the teachings of dana and sila, bhavana, and the development of wisdom together. This um, poem was written by Sayadaw Upandita during the first retreat that I had with him back in 1985. I'd just like to read it to you. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, birth only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, birth only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity, birth only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Adorned with the brightness of clear insight, the true nature of the world is seen right. Birth only in states of ease and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit, and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. 
vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment and just let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.